1997, David St. Ange asked Ricky Carmichael to autograph a 4x6-inch photograph that he took at a race. Carmichael, 17 at the time, loved the image so much, he asked to keep it. Flattered, St. Ange handed it over. That 4x6-inch color photo went on a journey St. Ange never could have imagined. 22 years later, he finally got his Carmichael autograph. Not on the original version of his photo, but on the six-foot-plus-long poster that Oakley produced from that original image. It's late April 2019, and we're inside a noisy office below MetLife Stadium in East Rutherford, New Jersey. Listen closely, and you can hear the sound of a Sharpie frenetically moving across glossy paper. This photo I keep mentioning, it's an image of Carmichael from the 1997 Pontiac Supercross. It's likely the most seen image in dirt bike racing history. It ended up on a billboard alongside one of the busiest freeways in the world. You can see it in the print version of this story on WeWentFast.com. Here's a snippet of their conversation at MetLife. You'll hear Carmichael first, then David Sainage. Then we would have, we would have found him when yeah. it happened because yeah. they'd have just said, "Hey, here's your go, here you go, and see you later." The story wouldn't have been as cool. Well, yeah. it's cool with Davey because it brings it full circle because he was the first guy I called. Oh, really? When, so oh, I got home from Virginia. The story that Carmichael mentions is what you're about to listen to. Had Carmichael and St. Ange not had that brief encounter in 1997, like had Ricky just not been in his team truck when St. Ange visited, the photo wouldn't have wound up on a billboard, or in a race program, or on a poster, or on the homepage of Oakley's website. This story, it wouldn't exist. If you want to own a piece of this quirky moment in moto history, WeWentFast.com slash shop now has artwork inspired by the photograph. Illustrated by Tim Glasspool, the 12 by 16 inch print captures the essence that made this one of the most famous and lasting images in motocross. $20 at WeWentFast.com slash shop. That's WeWentFast.com slash shop. And if you want to own a copy of the original photo, David St. Ange is making it available for the first time ever. Details on how to purchase it can be found in the show notes below. Or you can send me a DM on Instagram, at WeWentFast, and I'll connect you directly with David. Want free stickers? Go to WeWentFast.com slash subscribe, sign up for the newsletter, and then check your inbox. The welcome message has the key to free decals sent directly from me. Because it's nice to receive something in a real mailbox that isn't junk or bills. Support We Went Fast by joining the Fast family at wewentfast.com shop. The revenue from the hats, shirts, and artwork go back into telling you more stories. And now, One Hit Wonder, the story behind the most expensive photograph in motocross history. With a camera slung over his shoulder, David St. Ange walked down an arena hallway looking for something to shoot, something worthy of a magazine's cover. At least that was his dream goal. 
St. Ange had press credentials for his first professional race, round six of the 1997-98 PJ1 Arena Cross Series in Hampton, Virginia. He didn't get a cover that weekend, however, not even an inset photo. Instead, on his walk, he found something even more unexpected. He saw one of his photographs already on the cover of a magazine. Although black and white and cropped, it was unmistakably a photo he captured nine months earlier from the seats of a race he attended as a spectator. Still 15 feet away, he froze and stared. There's a vendor with a magazine rack. And I'm looking and I see the, I see this magazine and I'm, I'm looking at the billboard and I'm like, holy shit, I think that's my photo. The subject of this image was then 17-year-old Ricky Carmichael, captured in a very distinct position aboard his Kawasaki KX125. His motorcycle looked so flat that someone with little knowledge of dirt bike racing wouldn't be able to tell a motorcycle was even in the picture. The front wheel was turned ever so slightly upward. The left end of the handlebar stabbed at the ground, and Carmichael's arm stretched out so far he appeared to be losing his grip. He looked calm in the air, his head and torso twisted to the right, revealing the name and number on his jersey and a black goggle strap with the recognizable elongated O logo of Oakley. In a loud, chaotic, dirty, and often brutal sport, this photo represented complete serenity. Behind Carmichael was nothing but crowd, yet their shades of gray more resembled paintbrush strokes or a close-up of a sonogram than people. St. Ange approached the rack and pulled out the title, RacerX Illustrated. The hair on his arm stood up. He felt his face get hot and his head spin, trying to process the thoughts. His photo. His photo wasn't really on the cover. The cover was a photo of his photo, which was, is that an Oakley advertisement? Is that a, a billboard? I'm looking at it and I pick it up and I'm like, this is my freaking photo. Right. So I'm like shaking at this point. I, I buy a copy from this guy. I happen to have those photos with me. So the guy, all the guys that I went with were sitting around and we're, we're, we're a being the photo to the billboard <laughs> and everybody's freaking out. They're like, dude, that's your photo. And so we're, everyone's freaking out. And this is on a Friday night. And of course, we're not getting home till Sunday, right from Virginia, dying to get home. Get home Sunday afternoon, Sunday evening. Of course, this is the early days of the internet, right? Oakley.com. Boom. Guess whose photos on the front cover of Oakley's website with no other writing? David St. Ange was a one hit wonder, and nobody knew his name. St. Ange didn't ride his first motorcycle until his late 20s, around 1995. He discovered the sport through his friends. I actually competed. I was terrible. I had too much fear to be a good racer, but I really enjoyed it. It was a great workout. I just started getting into the sport, um, uh, the professional end, end of it as well, from a viewership standpoint. You know, I'd start watching it. and Because uh, they'd be talking about racers while we were practicing, and I'm like, well, I don't know who those people are. So I started... You know, like anything else, you fall into a, 
uh, a topic when, with, with, you know, with your friends. So I started getting into it. A self-employed audio engineer and producer from Ransomville, New York. He became interested in photography shortly after discovering dirt bikes. For Christmas, he bought his wife a Canon Rebel G, a prosumer-grade 35mm camera, but he ended up being the one to use it more. And he absorbed himself in the manuals and trade journals. He studied the technical aspects of the equipment and craft and practiced every chance he got. In April 1997, he cut through Canada to attend the Pontiac Supercross. He brought along the camera, a 75 to 300 millimeter telephoto lens, and a handful of 36 exposure rolls of Kodak Royal Gold 1000 speed film. He shot along the railing during afternoon practice, but spent the evening in the lower bowl of the Pontiac Silverdome shooting from a seat. He believes it was the 17th row. At the end of the second 125 class heat race, St. Ange followed Carmichael through the viewfinder as he approached the finish line and, click, took exactly one photo of the kid in the air. Laying the bike completely flat after a heat race wind summed up Carmichael's rookie season. Completely unpredictable. You know, the one thing I do remember about that photo is, is thinking, man, I think I might have got, got something there. You know, I think I might have got a, a good shot. Carmichael remembers the moment over the finish line. The Pontiac course looked more like a rough motocross track, and he can still see the ruts up the face of the finish. Dude, I honestly thought, I mean, I'm thinking about it more now as we're talking. I, I mean, it's, I'm lucky that I didn't wreck. <laughs> I remember, vaguely remember, at, like, winning the heat. Um, and I did a whip there out the finish line. It was so rutted. Back then, the tracks used to get so rutted, as in you couldn't jump the triples the whole main event because they just get too rutted up the faces. But, um, yeah, dude, I, like, I landed. I'm like, I can't believe I say I pulled that off and saved it, and I didn't crash. A few days later, St. Ange sat in his car in the parking lot of a Topps grocery store. He flipped through the stack of developed color 4x6-inch prints, the first images he ever shot of an event. He knew he didn't have the critical eye of a seasoned artist, but he still had genuine excitement seeing all of his photos. Then he stopped at the Carmichael shot. I'm like, oh, these are pretty cool. But I do remember seeing Ricky's. I'm like, oh, okay, that's pretty cool. The photo is perfectly timed. Carmichael is at peak pancake, the exact midpoint of his whip. The original and uncropped version of this photo has, depending on personal aesthetic tastes, more visual clutter. Carmichael is still the focus, but there's so much else to see. The crowd is more discernible. Facial expressions can't be read, but actions can. Everyone sat at ease, focused on Carmichael. The white hole of a flashbulb in the upper left corner indicates at least one other fan captured this exact moment as well. The bottom half of the photo is the stadium floor, filled with piles of dirt and frumpy-looking hay bale covers. Four of the five flaggers craned their necks to look up at Carmichael. One offered him the hang ten gesture. A photographer aimed his lens upward, but not at a steep enough angle to shoot the winner. Two men in jackets and jeans, who seemed to have no role at all, stood inches off the course, their hands at their sides, their necks tilted back. The man in the blue jacket looks like Kevin Windham's mechanic, Ali Seymour, but even he can't say for sure. 
The front fender and wheel of a Suzuki invaded the left edge, but it's impossible to tell whose bike. Eleven Suzukis lined up for Heat 2 that night. Oakley's treatment of the image produced a much more emotional response, but the original is still a shot to be proud of. You know, I got home and, you know, showed anybody that wanted to listen. And, um, but that was about the extent of it at the time. You know what I mean? Because there was no social media back then. So I think I should probably, the guys I rode with, I probably went over and showed them, you know, probably right away within a day or two. St. Aj already had plans to attend the next race in North Carolina. And now he had an excuse to interact with the riders. Into his luggage, he stuffed a small album full of his prints. In the paddock of the Charlotte Supercross, he got lukewarm excitement. So I had all these photos from Pontiac, you know, in a little photo album. And as we met some of the riders, I'd show them, oh, here's the photos I took. And, you know, and most of them were like, oh, that's nice. <laughs> you know, because like I said, most of them were crap in hindsight. You know, they weren't anything real, real special. Um, and Ricky, Ricky was the last rider I came to. A guy walks up to me and says, hey, dude, will you sign this picture for me? And I said, dude, that's awesome. And I I either asked him for it. I thought I asked him if I could have it. And he's like, oh, man, can I have this? And I'm like, oh. And, and I was like taken aback. You know, I thought, how cool is that that this, you know, this, this writer likes the photo? I'm like, yeah, absolutely. I think he said thanks. And I walked away and. And I'm like, oh, I went, oh, crap, I should go back and give him my name and address and phone number because maybe maybe he'll send me an autographed photo or something like that, you know, in exchange for giving him the picture. I had gone back and his mechanic, Chad, he's like, oh, Ricky's already gone. And I had written my information on the back, maybe of a business card or a piece of paper. But I know a thousand percent I gave my all my contact information to Chad. What Chad did with it. I had, you know, I have no idea, and, and that's not, I'm not trying to trust, put any blame on him. That's just factual information, right? So I, I definitely gave my information to Chad. And, you know, that was it. When reached via text message, Chad Watts, Carmichael's mechanic that year, said he does not remember this moment from Charlotte 1997. St. shot from the seats in Charlotte, but didn't leave with anything memorable. He returned to New York printed a new copy of the Carmichael photo from the negative, and immersed himself more into both riding and shooting. Carmichael won that race in Charlotte on April 19th, the third victory of his rookie season. At some point that day, he showed the photograph to Johnny O'Mara. O'Mara, the 1984 AMA Supercross champ, was Ricky's trainer and coach. He came to every race. He was also the motorcycle racing sports marketing manager at Oakley. Carmichael asked him for a favor. I said, dude, can you take this back to the office? This is really awesome. And can you make me some, make me a couple copies of it, like pictures, like print it out, like put it in the copier and just put out some eight and a half by 11 sheets of it. So he did the next. So he took the picture with him. He made some copies Carmichael laughs about how corny this sounds today, but he literally just wanted something to tape up in his bedroom. 25 years later, he's not sure if he ever actually did that. I was still living with my parents at the time. I, I don't do it. I, do, I, I just think I kept them laying around and 
maybe sign some for I, I don't know I just I, I don't really recall doing anything with them I just had, got like 10 of them and I think he brought me back like 10 and I just put one on my wall and hell that's it really Johnny O'Mara remembers seeing the photo but that's about it it was a very cool photo I, I remember just going damn that is that's sick you know like that's that's my words I'm like man that's an amazing photo of you Ricky just pancaked it was exactly what Ricky was about already then. Like, just amazing. You shake your head, like, how uh, how impressive he was on a motorcycle, even at, you know, his first year on the bike, number 70, but winning races like that. And then kind of showboating a little bit, obviously. Uh, but that was, that was RC. O'Mara has no recollection of taking the photo back to Oakley's headquarters in Irvine, California, or making the copies for Carmichael. He agrees, however, that in 1997, he was most likely the reason the photo wound up circulating Oakley's marketing department. Johnny brought the photo and he says, isn't this a badass photo? I'm like, yeah, it's super cool. Where'd you get it? Scott Bowers was one of two people that O'Mara reported to at Oakley. Bowers was the vice president of sports marketing at the time. You know, the initial thought was, wow, I wonder if we could use it for a poster. It could be really cool. Can we get in touch with the photographer? We got to get some usage uh, rights out of it. So we went back to Ricky and Chad and tried to find who's a photographer and nobody could make a connection. We just thought the whole image itself was really, really cool um, in essence. And, you know, I have to say for sure, Johnny had to have brought it back because we were all, I remember we were all like on over it, um, looking at it in the office. So, yeah, I mean, it was definitely just that perfect moment where you get an image that is just so perfect in a way and not, I think, even a little bit of the roughness added to it. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't a typical photo shoot shot that you get the perfect resolution, you get the perfect color. It was one of the reasons, too, I think we ended up going in black and white with it. Tom Moyer is the founder and creative director of M1. His company was the exclusive advertising design agency for Oakley. St. Ange's 4x6-inch color print would have wound up in his team's hands, and they executed the final look that was already an up-and-running Oakley marketing campaign. That particular style, uh, we developed that because Jim... The Jim that Moyer is referring to is Oakley founder Jim Gennard. Jim, you know, and I had conversations about we wanted to unify the look and feel of all of the um, athlete-related, you know, communications. We were doing ads, brochures, posters, things like that. And one of the challenges with that is you get all these different images from all different photographers. The quality is different. The look can be very different. So I presented a number of options, but this is what we went with, which was this high contrast, black and white, um, manipulated image with the background, the backgrounds blurred, um, and there was some motion added to those because that way it, it really emphasized the athlete and the movement. That's where that look came from. And back at that time, that was pretty innovative for Photoshop-related retouching stuff. You know, we, we're very sophisticated today, but that's that wasn't the case at the time. Moyer loved the position of the bike and body. He knew they needed to minimize the background and crowd to create an illusion he referred to as, quote, atmospheric perspective. We wanted to enhance what was already there. You know, it's a, it's a pretty powerful image. It's a very powerful image. We just wanted to make it a bit more impactful by focusing more on the athlete and a little bit less on the crowd, a little bit more dramatic, and give it 
a signature look that Oakley could own. You know, that's one of the things that we really tried to do is make sure that anytime anybody saw a piece from Oakley, they knew it was Oakley right away. Almost even without the logo, they knew. After treatment, Moyer would have submitted a proof to Oakley for a first round of edits. Lewis Wellen, the director of sports marketing at Oakley at the time, said, quote, I remember seeing that photo taped to cubicles. Anyone that was a motorcycle head at Oakley had a Xerox copy of it. Oakley's marketing department knew they didn't have an agreement with the photographer. They couldn't find him. After asking Carmichael and O'Mara, they called Davy Coombs, founder of RacerX Illustrated, and sent him a copy of the image. He can't remember if it came via fax or email, but he got to see the photo before it became part of the ad campaign. He had no info for them, but as a photographer and publisher, the composition and angle struck him. I think we've all grown to love this photo, but when I first saw it, I think my thought was, cool whip, but how did he get that angle? And, you know, and that's, you know, that's when it became sort of a, the Subruder film of motocross. <laughs> like, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't who got shot or who fired the gun. It was who shot the photo. And I couldn't figure it out. It wasn't me. It wasn't any of our guys. And I did notice that the angle was, was really interesting because, you know, when you have a floor pass for a Supercross, you're usually shooting up at a guy when he's in the air or you're shooting him tight in a corner. And you have to have a, a different sort of setting because the light is coming from the roof down or side out. It, the, right, the light doesn't reflect off the ground because the ground is covered with dirt. So the photos were always inherently a little dark. And the lighting on this one, he was, he was so far away that the flash wouldn't have mattered. Oakley didn't see any other options for locating the photographer. It was 1997. The internet existed, but there was no such thing as a viral image. It was hard to load up photos and share things. We were still in the ink age of media. And, and so how do you show someone a photo if you're faxing it to them? You know, it doesn't really come across that well. And I just remember saying, I, I wish I could help you guys, but I don't know who shot it either. It's always protocol that you've got to give either credit or photo uses to photographers. And we had no idea. So imagine going from either Chad to Ricky or straight to Ricky, Ricky to Johnny, you know, and Johnny at that time was probably like, yeah, cool photo, had no background on it. It probably got in the hands of Jim Gennard, you know, our founder. And he tends to like, that's badass. Let's roll with it. And, you know, we probably did everything we could to try to find the photographer, but on timelines and everything else, we just went a little bit of a beg for forgiveness kind of situation. I loved it as soon as I saw it, said Oakley's founder, Jim Gennard, in an email. I made the call to use it for multiple things, including a poster. Really don't remember much about it other than I loved the shot. Bowers and Wellen both said that, despite being a public company, Oakley still had a small feel and Gennard still oversaw the major design and marketing decisions. The iconic, and now very rare, Oakley poster went into production first. What day exactly is unclear, but certainly at some point in the second half of 1997. The eight former Oakley employees I spoke with can't recall exact timelines or production runs, but Bauer said an average poster run started at 5,000. But this one, 
being segmented for motocross could have been as few as 1,500. Oakley, which had around 900 dealers at the time, received them as gifts from their field representatives. Also, a two-page version of the photo appeared as an advertisement in the 1998 AMA Supercross program. How the image wound up on a billboard is its own story. Oakley had a space close to LAX on I-405, the Los Angeles area freeway notorious for its traffic. Today, this specific billboard on 405 garners 1 million impressions per week, according to outdoor media, owners of the space. Renting the 14-foot tall by 48-foot wide placard costs nearly $50,000 for a four-week campaign. Oakley had the billboard locked up in a multi-month deal, and that fall, they used it to promote a Kevlar material used in the company's first footwear product, Shoe One. The ad featured a hypodermic needle dripping with Kevlar, an ad copy that read, O-type positive. And we received so much hate mail over having a hypodermic needle and then calling out O-positive because this was also somewhat at the height of the AIDS epidemic and you know bad use of needles and so on and so forth. So we immediately pulled it down and we couldn't think of an image to run. And it was right prior to coming into January in Anaheim. We thought, why don't we run that shot of Ricky? It'll blow people away. It'll be very cutting edge for motocross in general, you know, especially for us to do something as rebellious is that image and only locking it up simply with an O, not even calling out Oakley. And it was a temporary run. I think we only had two months before we were gonna switch out to a new ad. There was later a Michael Jordan ad, if I recall. And so we just thought that was the perfect image to put up. And so that's really what, what motivated us to put it up on the board. But it was just a perfect timing for all of those things to come together. What is more astonishing here, that a ticket holder's photograph a regular 4 by 6 inch print on photo paper, probably covered in fingerprints by the time it reached the art department, could become a 672 square foot advertisement? Or that a motocross rider soared high above one of the busiest freeways in the entire world? The timing was perfect. The image went up late in the fall. The 1998 Supercross series began on January 10th, at the L.A. Memorial Coliseum, 14 miles away. It certainly impressed Carmichael, who didn't know anything about it. O'Mara picked him up at LAX when he came to California for testing with his team. Rounding a bend on 405, O'Mara said, Hey, Ricky, check that out. And he just freaked out, you know, like, wow, that's me. He showed me the billboard. I was like, holy crap. You know, at the time I was 18, it was insane. Go to Oakley, then they're making, like, life-size posters of it. Uh, there's, like, a five-foot-size poster, of a five-foot-size five copy of that. And it is, uh, I mean, it was, it was a, definitely a wall hanger for sure. Davey Coombs needed an image to fit a specific theme for issue number nine, volume eight of his Racer X Illustrated newspaper. When he found out about the billboard... He asked contributor Chris Holtner to get him a photo of it. Holtner drove up to the scene, pulled over to the shoulder, jumped out of the car, snapped one photo across the 10 lanes of I-405 traffic, and left. The issue shipped by the end of the year. 
In Oakley's version of the image that appeared on the billboard, poster, and supercross program, the photographer seems to float in the air with the subject. Perspective holds weight, and St. Ange's photo, with its perfect straight-on shot angle, the ground cropped out, and blurry onlookers, the rider appears to be in a state of infinity on all sides. It was much different than what Coombs saw when he attempted to help Oakley locate the photographer. I do remember thinking, yeah, that's an interesting photo. I didn't, I didn't understand its brilliance at first, but then when I saw it on the billboard uh, and the photo of the billboard and then the, the Oakley posters that they distributed, then it made sense because it, it spoke to Oakley's sort of techy jet fighter MIG Soviet, you know, they, they just, they were, they were like, they were stealth before that was a thing that we all knew about. Uh, Jim Gennard had this, this style uh, that, that, that he preferred that was, you know, almost 1984 Orwellian. Jim really liked that. M1's Tom Moyer. You know, that was a big part of what he liked. And so we wanted to make sure that we had a very powerful, rich, impactful image. So that's kind of where that, that kind of dark feel came from. You know, when you go to Oakley, the front doors, it, it looks like you're going into a different portal to a different world in the future. Around the same time that the billboard went up and RacerX shipped its issue, David St. Ange got some good news at his home in Ransomville, New York. He had been published in the February 1998 issue of Motocross Journal, a now-defunct sister publication of Motocross Action. It was a larger-than-half-page color photo of Kevin Windham at the Binghamton Motocross National, a photo he took from the spectator side of the fence. It appeared on page 79. The editor spelled his name incorrectly, David St. Once, a small but cringeworthy injustice. It was his first published photo, or so he thought. He didn't get paid, but the editor agreed to secure press credentials to any East Coast race he wanted to attend. Between 1998 and 2000, he estimates he attended around 15 races and always sent in his work. He never got another photo published. His first race as a credentialed photographer? The Arena Cross in Hampton, Virginia, January 16th through the 18th, 1998. Support We Went Fast and become a member of the Fast family. Keep these stories coming by buying swag from wewentfast.com shop. And don't forget to tell a friend. Seriously, when the story is over, head to wewentfast.com shop. On the morning of Monday, January 19th, David St. Ange sat in his home office with a photo of Ricky Carmichael filling his entire computer screen. His photo. At 9 a.m., he called Racer X and talked to Davey Coombs. I do remember talking to him and him asking me what I thought the photo was worth. I, I couldn't put a number on it because, you know, I, I sold black and white photos. I wasn't a very good color photographer, and I'd never gotten a photo that would go on a billboard or a poster or anything like that. And I can remember thinking $1,000, maybe maybe 2000 And I remember him saying, it's got to be 10000 or something like that. I don't think I was the one to give David the best advice on how much that photo was worth. And I remember him saying, famously, 
oh, I'm sure Oakley has a tech for you. I know all those guys, and 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 I'm sure they've got a tech for you. And, and you know, I'm gonna, you know, let me take all your information. I'm I'm sure they're gonna get right back to you and 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 you know clear things up. So I got that out of the way. So now I got Monday afternoon. I start researching copyright infringement to understand what it is. You know, and I'm I start reading because what I did in my time, I started reflecting. I'm like. If you think, you know, think about that photo, even though the motocross industry isn't the biggest industry out there, this photo ended up, as we both know, fairly popular. So I started relating in in context of hit songs. Think about bands that have, you know, the one hit single, and all of a sudden everybody knows their name, right? And I'm like, man, this is my hit song, and nobody knows who it is. A client who visited St. Ange that day recommended a specific lawyer he had used in the past. St. Ange chatted briefly with the lawyer, but said he wanted to give Oakley a chance to call back first. So Monday goes by, nothing from Oakley. Tuesday goes by, nothing from Oakley. To me, this is a big deal. Maybe, maybe they're busy. They don't, you know, it's not a big deal to them. But you know, right now, this is my whole world, the fact that this is going on. So now by Wednesday, I'm getting pissed. I'm like, you know what? Nobody knows. And I find out that there's posters. And it's a two-page spread in the Supercross program that year. And when you look at that program, it says copyright Oakley. You know, how many thousands of copies did they sell? Nobody knows that I shot that photo. That's my hit song. Nobody knows. So now I'm getting pissed. Wednesday goes by, nothing. Thursday morning, I'm like, you know what? Screw these guys. He called the lawyer to get started on building a case. The lawyer told him to register the photo with the Library of Congress ASAP. That afternoon, an Oakley representative finally called him. He can't remember her name, but he told the woman it was too late, that he decided to handle it with a lawyer. When reached via phone for this story, a former Oakley legal counselor declined to comment citing attorney-client privilege. Why Oakley took three full days to call St. Ange back remains a mystery. One theory assumes they were cleaning things up. Scott Taylor received a box of approximately 150 Ricky Carmichael Oakley posters. They were only 22 inches tall, but 75 inches long when rolled flat. That's over six feet. It's three inches longer than an average person's wingspan. Taylor was an outside sales representative for Oakley, and he was asked to quickly get them in the hands of all his dealers in Florida, also Carmichael's home state. In January 1998, he got another urgent memo. Get the posters back. We put these everywhere, so especially me, imagine in Florida, my ties with Ricky, I was also getting those posters autographed. We get them into all my dealers, and then you get a memo that there may be a problem with the poster. We may need to get them back. So you go back to those dealers, and you kind of give them an indication of what's going on, and you ain't getting that poster back. There's no way. You know, those things became, you know, you'd have to fight for them. They became gold that you weren't getting those back. But I remember just the panic that, I felt as a as an outside person like going, holy crap, you know, we got to get these things back because there could be this 
potential issue. And Taylor returned to every single dealer and begged to get them back. But he found more resistance than compliance. The poster was coveted, instantly a collector's item, and Taylor left the majority of shops with empty hands. If people wouldn't give them back, I just said, guys, you can't put them on display right now. Just keep them, roll it up, whatever, hang on to it, but you can't put it on display until we get you, I give you the go-ahead. Even a week ago, I was at uh, Alden Baker's Baker Factory, and the only thing on the wall in that place, other than the number plates of his athletes, is the poster <laughs> framed on his wall in the shop. So it's, it's, he's not even there anymore. And there's the Ricky poster mounted on the wall, but everything else is all current, you know, number plates or number one plates and stuff. So it's pretty funny how where you see those, people would still fight you for them. The billboard along I-405 changed over from the Carmichael photo to an ad featuring Michael Jordan, who won his sixth and final NBA championship later that year. Meanwhile, in upstate New York, St. Ange had visited the University of Buffalo to study copyright law and discovered willful copyright infringement punishable up to $100,000 per use. St. Ange counted up four uses, the poster, the Supercross program, Oakley's website, and the billboard. But he wondered, is each of those considered one use or is each poster printed considered one use? The lawyer said that was up to a judge to decide. Then the legal conversation took a bizarre and unexpected twist. The lawyer's like, that's why we want to go after everybody. This is the lawyer's words. We want to sue everybody, including Ricky, Kawasaki, Pontiac Silverdome. And I'm like, wait, I says, the only people that did anything wrong here was Oakley. I says that those are the only that's the only company or only entity we're going after. We're not, we're, we're definitely not doing anything with Kawasaki or Ricky or anything. Nothing, absolutely not. We're only going to go after Oakley. A week later, the lawyer said they didn't want to litigate it, meaning they didn't want to enter a lawsuit only against Oakley. It never went to discovery. The matter was settled out of court. My belief is because I cut them off at the knees when they wanted to name everybody in this lawsuit. You know, I mean, they're, you know, let's face it, they're fucking gold diggers, right? And because they, he knew the more, the more they could get of a judgment, the more they make. So the big lawsuit against Oakley over a mysterious photograph never happened. That's an urban legend that developed over time. But I had to ask if it ended up being the million dollar payday that everyone wanted to believe it was. Oh, God, no. Low five figures, I'll tell you that. Low five figures. I bought some nice camera gear after that. Full body uh, Canon um, EOS 3 film camera. A bunch of lenses, flashes. The lawyer took one third. Lewis Wellen, the marketing executive, said he knew Oakley had spent $15,000 to purchase global rights for other images used in a similar fashion. Being the featured subject of the photo, Carmichael always remained curious about the story behind the image. And whenever he saw the poster, or a photo of the poster, he found himself telling what he knew of the tale. In fact, it was a January 2019 Instagram post by Carmichael 
that led to this very project you're listening to. But I never could get clear answer on how much the photo was worth. All I know is at the time it was the most expensive photo in motocross history, possibly still to this day. <laughs> Ricky in that Instagram post, you know, most expensive photo ever was one of his quotes. I'm like, well, that might that may or may not be true, but that gives the illusion that this photo was a million dollar photo and it's not even freaking close to that, you know. Had Oakley been able to find St. Ange before using the photo? He said he wouldn't have had the guts or the experience to negotiate too hard for the global rights. There's probably a reasonable chance I would have said yes. 500, 1,000, I probably wouldn't have had the guts to ask for more than 1,000, I'll be honest with you, at the time. St. Ange became a cult figure in the small pool of regular photographers. Remember, he scored credentials through Motocross Journal. And this is a, 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 I think it's an interesting little side note. While I'm shooting for Motocross Journal, I run, obviously I run into some, some of the real photographers that, that are doing this. Um, and one of them, I can't remember his name, he shared the story with me that Oakley, they were actively seeking for a picture of him to campaign on. To clarify here, St. Ange is saying he heard within the press pool that the previous season, Oakley had wanted a picture of Carmichael specifically. So they were asking all the photographers for photos. And, and, and so this is, this is this other photographer's story. Okay, so here's what I have to say. <laughs> that I shot a similar photo. That's Joe Bonello. He was the photographer whom St. Ange picked up this side story. Bonello also shot photos at the 1997 Pontiac Supercross. A freelancer, he was trying to capture something that Oakley might want for their campaign. I remember I was on the other side of the stadium, you know what I mean, on the floor. And he was real far away. And I had just bought my 300-millimeter lens. I think he was pissed off when he was telling me the story. He's like, yeah, they were actively searching, but they kept coming back to your photo. And I guess apparently decided that they liked it better. I remember I had this vision shot, and I sent it to Oakley, and then I saw the ad, and that one was way better than mine. <laughs> and I was going, who shot this? Because nobody I knew shot it. So <laughs> that's the only thing I, I can recall about it. But And the photographer tells me, he's like, it's a shit photo. Ouch. But St. Ange only remembers the acrimonious half of Bonello's stinging assessment. The full quote which I verified with Bonello, was, technically, it's a piece of shit. Aesthetically, it's a masterpiece. But yeah, when you look at the picture, you go, that, I mean, there it is. It's a one in a million. Motocross on a billboard in L.A. was, and still is, a big deal. Factor in the settlement, the legal fees, the entire ad campaign, printing and distribution costs, and this photo is a six-figure image. It undoubtedly is the most expensive photograph in dirt bike racing history, and one that Tom Moyer is still particularly proud of. He said, of the hundreds of photos he worked on for Oakley, the Carmichael shot received a substantial amount of feedback. That was a very successful image. It was one of the better ones. If you talk to him, thank him for the image because we had a lot of fun working on it. Moyer is referring to David St. Ange, the photographer. 
I'm glad that it still has power and it still speaks to people. I mean, that's arguably the coolest thing. But to look back and, you know, have somebody call you, you know, years after the fact and say, hey, this is still relevant. People still dig this. That's pretty cool. When you get a chance to do stuff that moves people and they hang on their walls and they love, you know, that's that's pretty special. The settlement happened within six to eight weeks, and St. Ange continued to shoot at select races with press credentials. Pat Schutte was the PR director for Supercross at the time. He liked to introduce St. Ange with a punchy prelude. This is the guy who shot the Carmichael photo. After failing to gain traction as a motorcycle photographer, St. Ange attended his last race in 2000 and focused on his recording business, which continues today. He had trepidation about telling this story, even though it's more than two decades in the distance. My fear was people would see the actual photo, the original, and be let down, he said. He couldn't be more wrong. Until 2019, when my original print version of this story ran in RacerX Illustrated, the raw version of St. Ange's image had never been published, and only a handful of people ever saw it. It's like he opened up a time capsule. You know, the ones we all buried on the playground in the fourth grade. We all get to drift back to the late 1990s. For motocross fans, it's a mystery solved, a special treat, a tale finally told. Today we're inundated with so many photos that our thumbs never stop moving. There's a story behind every photo, but not every photo gets a story. Thanks for listening. If you want to support an independent storyteller, go to wewentfast.com shop and buy a shirt or stickers or art and tell a friend. wewentfast.com shop. Mm-hmm.